Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verse 21. That's where we're going to be today. If you need to Google it, that's fine too. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. And uh, before we jump in, I want to just express my uh, warm welcome again to those of you who are visiting with us. Um, and maybe you came to uh, see a kid. And I want to rush in my immediate marks, remarks to just say thank you to a couple of people. I don't see any of them here right now. They're sleeping because they've been exhausted. Um, to to uh, Laura Wasco, Brooke Talby, uh, Heidi Staley, and Carrie Corbin for helping direct our kids' choir. Wasn't that great? I've listened to that song so many times over the past three weeks, and you would think I'd have it memorized. It took those kids one chance, and they got it. So I'm grateful for them and just the work. And um, if you saw the kids' hallway, Carrie threw a little birthday party to Jesus today with our kids and uh, uh, handcrafted a dessert cart, which is worthy of you trying to steal. But we have cameras everywhere, so don't. But you can compliment her on just what she's doing to make this place seem really, really well, uh, really warm. Um, today's a great day to jump in here at Bethel because we're finishing up one chapter of a book that we've been studying. Uh, if you're new here, what we do is every week we gather together and we believe that God's word, the Bible, uh, has something to say to us today. And so every single week, we gather together with the intent of opening up the Bible and having it speak to our hearts and our lives. And we're the type of church that wants to not skip over the, the hard passages or not just lean into the good passages. We want to hear all of God's word. And so we go through it uh, verse by verse, almost word by word sometimes. And uh, today, you're jumping in with us, if this is your first service with us, at the end of one of the chapters right in the middle of the book, Romans chapter 7. And I told you that's a good Sunday to be with us because over the past couple of weeks we've been digging into this letter and, it, and it's had a bit of, uh, of an edge to it. It's had a little bit of uh, maybe a condemning tone to it. And if you're here today, you get all the victory, okay? So you're coming in at the perfect moment with us. Uh, next weekend, I want to invite you back as we uh, talk about Christmas on Sunday. I'll be preaching here as well as on Monday. Uh, we'll have a different Christmas Eve service, one and one thirty and three, and um, you'll you'll invite some folks to that, I'm sure. And then in January, we're going to be teaching not back in Romans, but every uh, January we have as a rhythm in our church a month that we set aside to talk about Family Month, because on the heels of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, we've learned that all of our families need a little refresher and grace come January, don't we? You you wait. You wait. We're doing that in January. And so it's going to be February before we pick back up in Romans chapter 8. So you're all clear on where we're going. Seems like forever from now, doesn't it? That we'll be back in Romans. But you're going to hope it never ends. It's so good. So today, Romans chapter 7, verse 21. As you're flipping to Romans 7, 21, I wonder if, does it bother anybody here when Christians sin? I bet if I went around this room, we could give examples of friends or parents or children or even trusted religious leaders who ought to have known better, but apparently they are no better because they've done something in private that got out into the public. It made you feel angry just thinking about the incongruity between their profession of faith and their actions. Does it bother you when a, someone who is outspoken for your, their faith as a Christian struggles with sin? This week, I did a little digging into some statistics. I want to be careful because I couldn't find a, a trustworthy statistic on this, so I'll go on the low side. 
but uh, it's been estimated that 26% of people who have left the church, who used to attend church, but no longer attend church, in the past five years, 26% have left the church because they felt that the church was just full of hypocrites. They quit Jesus because they didn't like his followers. And so I'm here today to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, yeah, here's the truth. Um, We are hypocrites. Come on, church. Don't be be so self-righteous sitting there being like, Pastor, where are you going with this? Don't let our secret out of the bag. I don't know about that guy. I'm not a hypocrite. You're, you're, everybody, let's out ourselves right now. I'm a hypocrite. Just say it. We are hypocrites. We, we are people who believe with our minds what we hold to be God's truth, and it deri- d- d- drives our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. But we're also people that simultaneously struggle to do perfectly that which we claim to know. We are hypocritical people. Even the best of imitators of Jesus, the Apostle Paul himself, admitted to the church in Rome and thus by writing it down to them, the billions of people who have read his letter to the Roman church since he wrote this, that in his writings he said, I feel the struggle of knowing the good I ought to do but failing in it. And So if this is you who, who know the fact that you struggle to do the thing that you know you ought to do, Paul writes today for our encouragement, not for our discouragement. He writes us not a letter of condemnation, but he writes us a letter of sympathy and of empathy and of hope for healing. And if you're down with that, let's stand together and read Romans chapter 7, verse 21. I love as it's a sign of us, it's a sign of us just trusting in God's word and saying, I stand underneath the promises that it assures. Can you just stand with me? I'll read it out loud. You just follow along in your copy of the Bible or on the screen. This is what Paul writes. This is our text for the morning. He says, so... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the reading from God's word. You may be seated. Here's Paul's basic dilemma. We have these expectations for our actions that if I know better, I will do better. I am uh, now solidly into my 30s, dreadfully. And uh, if I told you I was packing on the pounds more than I ever have in my life, which I don't know if that's true or not, I think it is, but if I then told you I found a diet that I know is good for me, you would expect me to make food choices that were consistent with the diet that I was talking about, wouldn't you? If I told you that, you know, now in my 30s, I feel very convicted about what's going to happen to me when I am at the age where I could take a break from working so much, and so I'm trying to build financial independence, I've, I've found a financial advisor, and he's got this plan set out for me that if I stick to the plan, it'll promise me financial independence. You would expect what I know to motivate what I do. 
if, um, if I told you that I was going to get my driver's license and I found the best instructor in the world, you would expect that I'd never see you flashing lights in my rearview mirror. I wonder if you know better in your life, but in reality, it's never made you any better. This is why those outside of the Christian faith look at Christians who ought to know better, and they say to us, they say, oh, Christians, you claim to know how to live life to the full without sin, but I see you doing stuff that I don't think a Christian should do. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know better. I'm sorry if I just gave you uh, childhood PTSD with your mom pointing her finger saying, "You, I raised you better. Here's Paul's analysis. He says, our breakdown is both against knowing and keeping the law and fighting and falling in sin. Paul's going to chop up this text two ways. He's going to say, uh, if we know the law, we ought to keep the law, but we know that we're struggling in sin and that we're falling in sin. That's his argument here. Notice this. He says, verse 21, 22, he says, so I find it to be a law. It's like a general observation, a principle, kind of like gravity. Somehow I'm anchored on this this, this, this earth, and I can't jump away from it unless I go to the moon. This is a law. I find this law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. For the past couple of verses, Paul has been discussing the commands of the law given in the Ten Commandments, the basic moral principles for God's people that promise his protection and his security and his provision of his blessings. And he says this, if we could summarize this, he says, try as I may, the funniest thing happens whenever I try and do good. I notice that I have an opportunity to do evil every single time. And while Paul puts this experience into his personal singular language, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Isn't this also true of you and me? I mean, how many of us could raise our hand and say, yeah, Paul, you got it, man. I I feel that too. Okay, so you don't. But you have moments where you want to do good, but you end up making a mess out of things, don't you? You say things like, I started to go to the gym, but they opened a donut shop next door, and I went there instead. <laughs> or like, I spiritually wanted to do something significant, so I meant well by going on a mission trip, but in retrospect, I probably offended the people that I served because I was so different from them, and I didn't even have any cultural sensitivity to them. Or... Um, Closer to home, I, I opened up a business to help people enjoy working with their hands, but the business turned just into lining my pockets, and now all the joy has been sucked out of it. Here's Paul's principle that he lays before us. He says this, it's, it's that trying to do right initiates a fight. It rhymes, it's clever, it's creative, but here's the point, is that whenever you have an opportunity to do the good thing that you know God has put before you, there is a fight in your soul, in your mind, in your, in your members of your body, trying to pull you away from doing good. Paul says he delights in God's law and the part of him, the, the inner man who is new, new in Christ. When we when we are new in Christ, when we know and delight in God's law, we also see with new eyes the opportunity we have for evil. We all know this. We all have this. We, we didn't know that it was wrong to chew gum in class until the teacher put that note on the wall. Do not chew gum in class. And you don't even like gum. You're more of a tic-tac person. But all of a sudden, the law made you realize that while you were trying to do good, all you were hankering for, even the valedictorian was there shaking their leg like a drug addict, waiting for a piece of gum. Because the law revealed while you're trying to do good, evil is close at hand. 
This is the story of our common ancestors, Adam and Eve, who were put in the garden to worship God and obey him. They were giving in number. They, they were given by God a number of commands, it, but it was the one negative command. Do not eat from this tree. That's the one that tripped them up and got in their heart and twisted them around into a life of selfishness. They knew God's law. They wanted to do God's law, but on the heels of delight in God's law is the enemy trying to tag on evil. The way that the enemy does this is by hijacking God's good law and playing to our selfishness. This is, if you want to know Satan's game plan in your life, this is all he's got to do. He's trying to figure out a way where you feel like you can gain from something that's wrong. Get a good feeling, look like a hero. Whatever it is in your own heart that brings you satisfaction or joy or pride, the enemy is just kind of trying to lay that card in front of you and see if you pick it up. It reminds me all of an episode from a TV sitcom, Friends where um, Phoebe Buffay has this quest to do a truly altruistic deed. It's this episode-long thing where she's trying just to, like, be a good person. She delivered triplets on account of her brother because they couldn't have kids, so she surrogated them. You'd think that someone who has triplets for their brother is a truly good person. But it was Joey, ironically, doofus Joey, who had a moment of philosophical clarity and said, Phoebe, you did that because it made you feel good. And if you get an ounce of satisfaction out of the thing that you've done, you've all of a sudden stopped doing the thing for the noble purpose, and you're doing it selfishly for yourself. He concludes, there is no such thing as a truly selfless good deed. And I never thought I would say this sentence, but Joey Tribbiani and the Apostle Paul agree. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. This is a couple of sentences earlier. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Thank you, Dr. Seuss. But how true is that for us? Maybe you don't feel this in your own life, but I feel this in my life as a pastor all the time. You know, we've, I'm, I'm coming up, I'm being, you know, campus pastor around here for four years and a couple of weeks, and so we've had a lot of time to get to know one another. I hope that sort of the pedestal that you thought I was on when I came here as a brilliantly humble 28-year-old man, that was a joke, uh, <laughs> no longer exists. But occasionally I go out in the world and tell people, hey, I'm a pastor, and it's almost like they want to atone for their sins by doing something nice to me. And... Um, I'm grateful for the fact that I live and work and serve in a community where people respect pastors, but um, here's my testimony. As, as, as hard as I try to do good, I find layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of evil in my own heart. I mean, I've walked into hospital rooms worried, so worried, praying for people in that room, and I've walked in to see them, and someone will make the comment, well, pastor, sure, it's nice of you to come and visit us. Such and such a pastor would never come to the hospital, but here you are, it makes us feel so good. And I will walk out the same person through the same doorway having that good experience at war inside of myself thinking, yeah, you're right, that other guy wouldn't come see you. What a punk, I'm so much better than him. If you think about it, what am I glorying in in that moment? Here's what's puffing on my pride. You ready? I arrived. I'm glad that I'm good at walking through doors. I showed up, and I think I'm awesome because they said it makes me feel good. 
In a hospital, you know who should get all the glory and the accolades? The nurses and the doctors who do the real work. If ever there was someone to be chided in a hospital, it's a pastor. Oh, here comes a guy who studied Greek in college. How is he going to help me with my diagnosis? But I walk out trying to do good and discovering in my own heart this twisted pride that is fighting me with a fight that I didn't even want. I wasn't even looking for. But when you try to do right, it initiates a fight. Paul says in verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Paul is talking about the, the law of your flesh or the, of your old person who is apart from Christ versus the law of the spirit, which he's going to talk about at length in Romans 8. It's the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul is contrasting the regenerate obedience to the law of God with the obedience that we have to the law of selfishness in my old degenerate ways of thinking. And delighting in the law of God, it's no easy path to selflessness or even self-actualization. If you delight in the law of God, it leads you paradoxically upward to God by a path of downward descent in your own heart. You don't often feel great about yourself when you look at the law of God. And actually, if I ever want a gut check in my heart, I go to God's law. And I say, God, what are the standards that you've put before me to live? And I realize how much I fall short of that law. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. He says, blessed is the man, though, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His a company of wisdom is not his foolish, selfish friends. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates. He mulls it over. He thinks on this. He talks about God's ways day and night. This is the missed expectation of religion. That if you are weak or deficient, all you need to do, pay attention, all you need to do is cross the line of faith, say the right words, believe the right thing, and then like a butterfly emerging from its cocoon, you will shed your previous captivity, fly away, transformed in your former life. You used to be stuck in your caterpillarish ways, wandering all about tree twigs and things like that, but now you're a butterfly flying over flowers. You're free. And that, friends, is not true. Paul is saying, there's still a lot of caterpillar left in me. There's still a lot of things from my old life that are waging war against me because I live before the time when I will be perfected in glory. Oh, my friends, we live in a time between the times. The Christian life is then the acknowledgement of that reality. The acknowledgement that I was dead in my sins. By the grace of God, I am not who I was, but I know I'm not who I need to be. That's where we live today. It's the reason we get so twisted in the world when Christians sin is because we think salvation in this life yields instantaneous perfection. Like if, if only we could delight enough in God's law, we'd not be hypocritical. But Paul shows us that even as an apostle, the fight continues among those in the faith. And I want to say it this way, the second principle he's pointing out to us is this, is this reality that in the midst of the war, yes, faith assures us of the victory, but it also intensifies us in the battle. Faith assures us of a victory that one day 
We will have victory in Christ Jesus. But in this present day, the war rages on. Which means that Romans 7 is not a chapter that we come to as a non-Christian, read it, and get saved by Christ, and then move past it to Romans 8. Romans 7 is the continual struggle of the Christian life that we keep coming back to time and time and time and time and time again. Friends, it burdens me so much the guilt that you, shit, you, you, you heap upon yourself in the midst of your sin. The more we love Christ, the more we should hate our sin, yes. But what do you do when you sin? For many of us, religion teaches us that we feel bad and we, we blame ourselves and we beat ourselves up and we wallow. If you sin against your spouse, you hide from them for a couple of days until time heals all wounds and then you move on only to do it again. Paul is showing us what to do with our sin. Do you see it? He's saying, in my heart, I know God's law, which helps me delight in the good that I know I ought to do. But when I sin and I don't reach up to it, I hate my sin. And that hatred of my sin creates this yearning in me for the day when I will sin no more. And that day, when is it coming? Just hang on. We'll get there. I came to preach. I hope you came to listen. Yeah. Romans 7 is the conflict in this life of a Christian then who knows better but apparently is no better. As long as sin is still at play in this world, all Christians will still have to fight against sin's law. Paul uses some war imagery here. It's unavoidable. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. The picture is that of gang turf wars. Where your life used to be lived in allegiance to yourself, King Jesus came in, took over residence in your heart, cleaned up the block, rules it now with his peace. But the members in your body who are offended that they're no longer on the throne are still shooting shots at Jesus trying to take over your life, causing you to be divided in yourself. This is the picture. Paul says, my own body, emotions, desires are making me captive to the law of sin in me. They were captive people. This is who Paul is writing to. 50% of Romans in the church in Rome were uh, people who had been captured. We know that 50% of the church in Rome were people who uh, had at one point lost the battle with their enemy, that is Rome. They were captured, and when you were captured, you were either killed or you were slaved. And so here we see Paul using very tense language to his original audience. We kind of just miss it. We're like, you're captured. That stinks. But Paul is saying, my members are waging war, making me captive to the law of sin. And he has in his mind the most severe of all situations that his imprisonment is bringing about all sorts of death in him. So I want to say this because I think, I don't have time to really unpack this, but it's important that you know this. When Paul says uh, that I see this in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind, what Paul doesn't think there is then that the body is bad and the mind is good. That's not Paul's point at all. Stay with me in Romans chapter 8. You'll see that. Nor is Paul saying that there is no hope. He is simply acknowledging that faith in Christ has intensified the war within himself. And what strikes me as encouraging from Paul's testimony here is he, he, is, he is no weak Christian, right? I mean, here's a dude who's an apostle. By human measures, he followed Christ with more zeal and earnestness than I believe we do today. Yet this fight against the law of sin was no strange thing to Paul, and by association, it's no strange thing to us today either. We 
so want to do good, but how frustrated our good intentions are by our evil selves. So it shouldn't surprise us, friends, when people like Pastor Steve, Billy Graham, Martin Luther King Jr., or, or our, our, our own theological heroes confess the point that when they try and do good, they see the wickedness inside their heart. One of those uh, theological heroes is a guy named Thomas Akempis who wrote in his journal hundreds of years ago that when I sit down to pray, my mind is filled with the most vile of things. I think if Paul had the opportunity to rewrite this paragraph for today's context, I think it would sound something like this. He goes, I find this law to be at play in my life that when I sit down to read God's word, Facebook is close at hand. When I sit down to play with my kids and talk to them about the things of God, my phone distracts me with a work email. When I, when I know that I ought to do something romantic for my wife or my spouse, there's an opportunity for me to do something else with the other people in my life that I think are important. Whenever we have the opportunity to do good, evil is trying to cut the legs out from underneath us. This is what gives way to Paul's emotional cry in verse 24. He says, I know the law, but I'm no better. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know if you read the Bible often. This may to you sound like an overly dramatic statement or the cry of a man with no self-esteem. But I would rather propose to you that this is the cry of a man who has been shaped by serious faith in God, by serious attention to his law, and by marked struggle to keep perfectly God's law. The grand conclusion of Paul's argument, I want to do good, God's law bids me do good, I delight in doing good, but my flesh is still engaged in this turf war for my soul, is this. He says, I feel trapped. I need help. In the, the chess game of life, the rook of sin has me in check. And I know better, but I'm no better. Who will deliver me from this state? So verse 24 is the honest cry of an apparent hypocrite. And please don't tune out on me. I'm, I'm working here and I'm coming for you in a moment. But Paul's argument logically extends itself out to all of humanity to show us that we were all selfish and all of us struggle to do good. It doesn't matter if you're a believer in Christ or not. You try and do good, you're going to find yourself frustrated by your own selfishness. But Paul says it's the Christians who are those who delight in God's word and are actually in the struggle. Christians are the ones who see the enemy clearest because they know there's a fight in opposition. And so the bedrock basis of Christianity, please listen, 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 is, is the thing that delivers us from the charge of hypocrisy. Here's why what you said earlier, that I am a hypocrite, was actually not entirely true if you have faith in Christ. A honest Christian, a mature believer, Someone who knows God's law and knows that they don't measure up to that law can honestly say with Paul, wretched man that I am. You see, a non-believer doesn't say this. They say, I, I think of the words of Harvey Weinstein. I read that letter he wrote days after allegations came out almost a year ago of him. And uh, in his own words, he said, I've known now for a long time that I was not a good person. I've been trying to fix myself, and I know I have a long way to go. That's what a non-Christian says. You say, I'm a wretched person. I'm trying to fix myself. But what does the Christian say? 
The Christian looks around and looks within and says, I've got nothing. I need someone who is stronger than my sin to come and rescue me from this body of death. Which is why, friends, dear Lord, help me preach this like I feel it. Our church, if we understand the gospel, ought to be the least hypocritical church because those who are honest about their shortcomings are the ones who experience God's grace. Like, it shouldn't surprise your friends and your family members that you're engaged in a battle because your faith in Christ should be the thing that illuminates the fact that I know God's law and I know I don't measure up. Enter the one that does. The church, or the, 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 the world doesn't understand this, so they look at us and they say, you claim to hold all truth, but you don't do it. That inconsistency is maddening to us, but we say, we know it too. It's maddening to us too. Thank God we know someone who can deliver us. All right, I'm, um, I'm failing to convince you here. Here's Paul's, here's Paul's third point. The war displays our desperate need for deliverance. Friends, the moment you accepted faith in Christ, you were, were moved from one path in your life to another path, and you started walking down the path that was led towards glory. And all along the way, are offshoots off that path onto the old path of your old selfishness. With billboards enticing you, seducing you, tricking you, saying here might be a better way to find personal fulfillment. Here might be a better way to scratch that itch of significance. Here might be a better way to find sexual fulfillment. Here might be a better way to feel good about yourself. And we see and need God's law which shows us that in our failures, we are desperate people who need deliverance by someone stronger than us. And this is what Paul says. He says, who can deliver me from this body of death? Because his sin has captured the members of his body. He is, he is as we are, subject to death. He says it's a body of death, a body of death. And um, as I got to thinking about this this week, it conjured up in my mind something so strange that we all do this time of year, but it's completely ridiculous. I want to draw it to your attention because one of my favorite things to do at Christmas is to go cut down a Christmas tree. Exhibit A. It's something that my family did as a, uh, as, as a, uh, as a kid. We put up our Christmas tree. But back in the 80s and 90s, they were, Christmas trees were terrible. They were all fake and some of them were blue. It was strange. And uh, we had to put it all together one spoke at a time. It was disastrous. But I didn't know any better. And then one year, uh, Chris and I were married, the first year of our, of our marriage. And there was a Christmas tree farm not too far from where we were on Black Friday. And so we went over there and cut it down. And for the first time in my life, I felt like a man. <laughs> so now in the Jacobson family, we have a fake tree. That's what the kids get to decorate. And then we got Mama's tree. Mama's tree is the real tree, the tree that's got all the ornaments that match and, like, look nice. And it's a real tree. And I was raised in a family, maybe you were too, where decorating a Christmas tree every year was so normal. It was like grilling burgers on the 4th of July or the Chicago Bears breaking your heart. You don't grill burgers? I, but I... Let me be real with you. I enjoy every part of cutting down a Christmas tree. 
I mean, the smell in my living room is the most satisfying thing come Christmas. Uh, I love the warmth that a real tree provides. These are fake, I don't know, 50-foot trees, it feels like, uh, on the side of our church. And they're decorated nicely, and thanks to all you who came in and did that. But this has a bow on top. I put it sideways, sorry. I need to, I've learned from some of you that I need to like, figure out how to... I watch you do this sometimes and, and make sure it's in the right, right way. And there's something about this motion that's just therapeutic for many of you. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just mimicking you. So I hope it looks right. But um, just with one simple bow, doesn't that tree just look so warm and inviting? And I love the quest out in the field. My wife and I, we take our kids, we bundle up warm, we endure the rain. Every single year, we've cut down a tree. And I love the fact that my wife and I are so unnecessarily picky when it comes to our tree. We pass up hundreds of trees before we find the right one. It's always the first one that we saw in the first place. And then I meet the tree. We take a a picture in front of the tree. And I fall the tree. I tie it up to the top of my roof. And like Julius Caesar, I mutter under my breath, I say, I came, I saw, and I conquered And if you've ever had a live tree in your home, you know the moment that you hack this thing down, the clock is ticking before you've got brown needles in your carpet. Because you took something that was living, you severed it from its root, you created a body of death, and you brought it into your living room to bring about Christmas. We take the tree. We subject it to a purpose in an environment that is alien to the one for which it was created. And this tree, if you could have seen this tree, nobody knows how long it took this tree to get to this state. I'm guessing like six years because I'm a moron. I don't really know. But if you could see this tree as a sapling, this tree was planted in the ground here in Valparaiso. It was in Valparaiso, Indiana. I cut this tree down. And uh, it was planted in hospitable soil with enough nitrogen and phosphorus and water and sunshine. This little sapling grew up in the environment it was created to be. Its members of its body shot forth out branches that radiated in the sunlight and it produced pine cones and more pine twigs. And birds came and probably nested in this tree and hopefully no spiders did. And if you saw this tree through the life cycle of this tree. It was a happy tree, a healthy tree, until one day when it became a wretched tree. It met its enemy, a pastor with a saw. And it fell down. It was made captive and subjected to death. When you look at Christmas trees, you don't see death. You see Santa Claus and presents and warm feelings and holiday cheer. But if this tree could talk to the other pine trees that it used to know, it would cry out with them and say, wretched tree that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We don't look at this tree and think it's wretched. We actually think it's quite beautiful. If I had time to put ornaments on it, you'd all ooh and ah at the tree. Maybe you'd even want to take it home with you. Maybe the moment of that faithful day when this tree gave in to the war against it, it looked around to all the other trees saying, I'm going to, be the, going to the greatest place in the world where I'm going to be loved forever and decorated with accomplishments and awards and prizes. I'm going to wear a ribbon and be the emblem of all that is good in the world. Aren't you jealous, other trees, that you're not like me? Until that first evening when it realized it had been duped and tricked and deceived 
and it was decaying and dying, starved for nitrogen and oxygen, drowning in a pool of stale water. Reality is this tree's not even got an ounce of water in it. It's a prop. It would say to his friends, wretched tree that I am. This tree, if it were able to return to its trunk, would not be able to repair itself. No amount of trying hard, no amount of trying to extend the xylem and the phloem inside of itself could ever reconnect itself to the trunk that was severed. This tree needs more than a transplant. This tree needs more than an arborist. This tree needs more than a master gardener. This tree needs the creator itself to come and intervene on its behalf. And you're going to make me preach here this morning? That's okay. Because you think I'm talking about a tree this morning. I'm not talking about a tree, but I'm talking about every single one of our lives, the trunk of our lives has been severed from our roots and causing our members to be with war with our nature. And isn't this true that you and I would prop ourselves up like we're not enslaved to the body of death that we are by our ornaments and our accomplishments and all of our good deeds, but we don't realize that we're hanging our ornaments on dead branches. Dead trees don't produce fruit. And we in our lives were created to produce fruit, to be increasingly fruitful for God. So that when we're connected to him, the fruit of God come out of us and walking step with the spirit and his law yields in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and all the things that we need here at Christmas. But, but, but instead, all that you and I can muster up in our own strength, all the good that is inside of us is actually nasty, undesirable, sinful things. Which is why you set out to enjoy a night of a drink with your friend and it turned into one too many. Which is why while we tried to provide for our family, we got distracted by how Ned the neighbor seems to be doing a better job than we are with his bigger house and nicer car and his nicer RV. And all of a sudden that desire for us to provide turns into this severed life that doesn't produce joy but produces covetousness or drunkenness. And it's God's law that reminds us that there's more to this world, but we can't attain it. We are trapped in this body of death. Who will rescue us? Uh, maybe I'm pushing this analogy a little too far this morning, uh, but I chose this picture today very specifically because uh, it's this question that aches in our hearts who will deliver us from our body of death that Christmas came to answer Paul shouts it out in verse 25 who will rescue me thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord we have this time of year only because we are desperate people who need deliverance so do Christians still sin in their attempts to delight in God yes woefully yes because we are people who are still being changed by God miraculously, but we're not yet perfect. We need the perfect one. And so we are not hypocrites if we are honest in our failings. We are not hypocrites if we find this season to be the hardiest and the holiest of ones where our affections are ignited and our faith in God is kindled because we know we need deliverance. It was the birth of Christ in which God heard us cry out, who will deliver me? And God shouted through the generations, I will. It was Christ who delivered us. I said it was Christ who delivered us. Didn't he deliver us? Luke chapter 1, 
prophesies over his life from his uncle Zechariah. He said that this baby was going to deliver us, deliver us. He would deliver us from the hands of our enemies that we might serve God without fear. Didn't he deliver us? It was Christ who taught us how to pray in his earthly ministry. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day of bread. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Didn't he deliver us? It was that day on the cross, that Friday, as he was condemned to die at the hands of vile people like you and me, the innocent for the guilty. And they quoted over him Psalm 21. They jeered and chided Christ, saying, if you're the Son of God, get down off that tree. They quoted the psalm word for word. They said to him, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Wretched men that they were, they didn't know that by coming to this world to die on the cross, Christ could deliver the death blow to death itself. And that early Easter morning, Jesus himself was delivered from his own body of death. Didn't he deliver us? And so if you are someone today who knows better but apparently are no better, can you with the Apostle Paul come to the end of yourself, throw up your hands and acknowledge Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that your heart today? If it's not your heart, if it's not your heart, I pray that God would make it your heart, that you would see the end of your own self and see the goodness of God. If you're a Christian, Christ delivered you from the body of death. That is the whole corpus of your sin against God and the destiny of your physical body. Christ has promised your sins are considered paid in full and your death is nothing but a home going to be with the Lord. Friends, do you know what that home going to be with the Lord is? That's how the true tree gets its roots back. To be united in the presence of their Father forever, the one who created them at peace with him in full life forevermore. No severance from your roots but it rooted in your God. We look forward to that day. And we know it's possible because the creator has come. We know it's possible because the creator has done it. We know it's possible because the creator has intervened. And we are wretched today, but we shall not be forever. So do you and I still struggle with sin? Oh, wretched men and women that we are. Which is why I'm glad that there is one who has delivered us from our chains. That's why I'm glad that this season, there is one who we remember has broken us free from our body of death. That's why I'm glad that this Christmas, we come forward to, a, to an offer from God who with unbridled joy puts before us freedom that we got to sing about. Would you stand to your feet?